Um, what is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent, uh, trying something new today, doing a live recording on YouTube. Um, this is new for me, so bear with me. But I'm very excited for today's conversation. We're doing this over YouTube because we cannot get this man in the studio. He's a uh, very, <clears throat> very, uh, conscious about his security and his OPSEC, and I'm very interested about the conversation we're about to have uh, in regards to Bitcoin. Uh, I'd like to introduce you all to J.W. Weatherman. J.W., welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate your time. Um, for those of you that don't know, um, J.W. Weatherman is the co-host of the Block Digest podcast uh, here on YouTube and is also the creator of the Bitcoin threat model. Uh, btcthreats.com. Um, yeah, uh, JW, thanks for coming on today. Uh, really appreciate uh, taking some time out of your Saturday here uh, to talk about Bitcoin's threat model. So I guess we're just going to start off. This is Tales from the Crypt. We're doing a little pre-interview um, conversation before we started this. Uh, so how did you find Bitcoin? You were saying you were initially skeptical of Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah. So I've been in uh, software security um, for almost a couple decades, something in that range. And um, when I first heard about Bitcoin, it was from some clients actually. And uh, and I had I had messed around with a few things earlier on, SETI at home, and then I you know kind of got exposed through uh, IBM. Actually, was really crazy about Second Life for a while. Um, and so they would actually have meetings with consultants in Second Life, IBM, and uh, and Linden dollars were being thrown around. And I just thought it was a complete joke. I mean, it was just a, a waste of time and it wasn't useful. And the Linden dollars thing was just, you know, it was just digital money, but like not digital money. It was just um, entries in a database, right? Um, and so when I first heard about Bitcoin from a client, I was like, ah, here we go again. You know, like <laughs> these guys are going to have me walking around in a virtual conference room, you know, uh, talking about Linden dollars, you know, uh, great. I hope, I hope I got my bill rate, rate uh, high enough on this one to make it worth it. So I totally dismissed it. And, uh, and I, you know, there, there wasn't a whole lot of interest from sort of the general say software security community in Bitcoin uh, for for quite a few years. There's still actually, I would argue, a surprisingly small amount of interest from kind of the broader community. Um, but guys like Dan Kaminsky uh, did do a security review and you know had good things to say about it. So I really, I blame myself for sure for not paying attention. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it was maybe a year ago or something like that that I that I took another look at it. And uh, that's when I decided to do a threat model of it, um, which is just kind of a systematic security design review. Um, and uh, after I did that, or as I was working on that, I was I was pretty blown away with how amazing it was and realized all of these guys that I've looked up to for years were working on it and just couldn't believe that I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the, uh, that's the interesting thing I like about uh your, your website or the, the PDF you have together with all the threats is that you break it down into software and human sort of threats. And yeah, it's actually one thing I don't know, but I, I don't know if you know, but I, I read a newsletter. One thing I talked about today, or excuse me, this week was Satoshi uh, and sort of the, the origin story of Bitcoin and the fact that Satoshi is anonymous is, is something uh, that actually helps Bitcoin out uh, in the long run. But um if he were to ever come back, that could be a threat um, to the network. 
argue. Uh, what, it what could be actually. I do. I do. I do address that in the threat model. Um, more related to somebody claiming to be Satoshi, whether it was legitimate or not, um, is sort of the way that I deal with it. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You had the Craig Wright example in it as, a, as an attempt yeah. to attack them. Yep, yep, exactly. Um, so yeah, the 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 thing, one of the things that made me think of it, and just to give you an idea of what a threat model is, you basically try to think of all the ways that you could break a piece of software. And uh, and a good threat model, you know, for decades has included um, anything that can be done that that software relies on. So. You know, traditionally, I would look at stuff like breaking into a data center and stealing a floppy disk with admin passwords sitting on top of, uh, you know, a, a server, um, th that sort of stuff, um, or social engineering, right? Being able to call up the secretary and ask for a password reset. So going into the physical world in that space is pretty normal for a for a good software, you know, security review. Um, but Bitcoin is interesting because there's a lot, there's a lot more going on. And uh, um, so as you're going through sort of all the ways that you could break it, one of the ways that, that I, theoretically you could break it, right? And to, to be clear when the, the threat model is, you know, the summary of the threat model is I don't know of any ways to break Bitcoin right now, but, um, but all the ways that I've thought of and anybody else has thought of that I'm aware of is in the doc. And uh, one of the ways is you could pretend to be Satoshi and try to introduce a security flaw into Bitcoin. Um, and I, I do believe that's exactly what Craig Wright was doing. Um, and uh, ironically enough, he uh, he got debunked by Dan Kaminsky, the guy that did the security review on Bitcoin all those years ago. Um, and uh, Dan's got this great, great post about um, a cryptographically provable fraud, <laughs> which I think that may be the only legitimate claim to fame that uh, CSW has is um, you know, there's a lot of people that are in jail right now that are not cryptographically like provable frauds. You know, it's be beyond a benefit of reasonable doubt, but but this guy actually provided enough evidence to where you know there's not enough molecules in the universe for this guy to be Satoshi. <laughs> <laughs> it's a uh, it's a funny attack vector, and it's funny. I mean, Craig's probably isn't wasn't there actually recently like uh, like somebody else who was claiming to be Satoshi from New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. I it, I didn't even look into it much. Um, now it just you know it's it's just sort of a joke to me. Uh, and it, it was pretty early on because Craig Wright is not exactly a he's not a credible sort of pretender to the throne uh, in any way. But but yeah, this guy kicking around New Zealand did claim to be Satoshi recently. Yeah. Um. So one thing I actually I'm very interested to talk. So would you consider? I'm very interested to talk about with you is the cypherpunk movement. Would you consider yourself a cypherpunk or? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and and uh, I, I'll give you a definition of cypherpunk. Um, it's basically somebody that um, I would say understands economics and then also understands encryption and how encryption is going to impact the world. Um, and it's a, it's a you know 30 plus year old movement, um, goes all the way back to the very roots of internet security, like even public key cryptography. Um, and so SSL or any sort of e-commerce on online um, is completely dependent on public key cryptography. Uh, early cypherpunks are the guys that are responsible for that. Um, they've been responsible for a lot of what we take for granted right now. Um, and they're, you know, I believe they're also uh, responsible for Bitcoin, um, not just uh, all of the antecedents to Bitcoin, but 
pro almost certainly Bitcoin itself. And, and certainly it's the cypherpunk movement that's responsible for all of the significant developments post, post the white paper as well. Yeah. And the one thing, um, I love about the cypherpunks from what I read, um, uh, I mean, just looking at the, at the movement, if you will, I don't know yeah. if you would call it that, but yeah, I, th I think that's a fair, that's a yeah. fair term looking at it uh from the outside looking in and sort of trying to have have a little little skin in the that game um cypherpunks are obviously hyper focused on security uh so and the one thing i love about the cypherpunk movement as an observer is you guys are hyper critical of ideas and you you, you test ideas take them to their limits and that's one thing you're doing with the bitcoin threat model is trying to to show bitcoin's limits and what we should be aware of and the attack vectors that do exist. And so just having that first principle mentality of security is why I'm sort of drawn to Bitcoin in particular as a project. And then um, again, the Satoshi narrative. So I'm, I'm a big believer in narratives and humans are very susceptible to falling into to narratives. And there's no better narrative in the cryptocurrency world than, than Bitcoin. I mean, the Satoshi origin story um, is going to be hard to beat in the long run. And when you couple that with the Lindy effect of Bitcoin being um, the only the, the, the blockchain with the most longevity with the, the highest uptime, uh, the longest uptime uh, across the board, uh, it's going to be hard to beat in the long run. And the only way you're going to be able to beat it is via these threats that you sort of lay out in the Bitcoin threat model. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you is sort of satoshi in the beginning of the cypherpunk movement were you on that cryptography mailing list um yeah but i don't i i feel like saying yes definitely overstates my importance so yeah i mean i was uh i yeah yeah but i i didn't make a significant contribution in any way to the cypherpunk movement um i i, I do have my own like claims to fame in software security but they would uh they would pale in comparison to anybody like uh any of the names that would pop into our head like adam back or way die or how finney or any of those guys so um yeah say, saying that i was on the mailing list or you know julian assange um saying i was on the mailing list definitely makes me sound more important than i am but yeah yeah, I'm just curious to see how like the nature of that mailing list is. Is it just like it's a blast to everybody and anybody can read what's yeah. going on and then chime in when when they have an idea or or uh, a critique. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just it was a completely unedited forum um, with I remember right about five thousand people on it, something like that. Um, and most of us just uh, just got an email um, from smart people and read it, right? Um, uh, most people were not, uh, were not posting or certainly not posting anything of value. Um, and, uh, and just kind of observing the, you know, a bunch of geniuses working on hard problems. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's, thing. it's similar to like the Bitcoin, uh, dev mailing list now, right? If you join that, you, anybody can respond, anybody can read it. Yeah. No, that's, um. One thing I actually talked about this week is that, like, so the cypherpunks, they've been congregating online for, for decades now, talking about these these uh, these problems in software security and cryptography and um, eventually economics when while trying to make uh, digital money. So a lot of the a lot of people out there uh, when talking about Bitcoin and blockchains and the, the overarching landscape 
um, will will say, "Ah, oh, Bitcoin was the first iteration. Like, it's going to be the MySpace of, of cryptocurrencies. Like, there's going to be another one uh, to take it over and, and basically uh, iterate on what it does and do what it does better." But what a lot of people don't realize is that the cypherpunk movement has been working on these technologies for decades and working towards Bitcoin. Like, Bitcoin is not something that just showed up out of the blue like it, it it was an iteration of technologies that came before it so if you could help me explain why the bitcoin is my space to an altcoin being facebook analogy that a lot of people like to make um and sort of helping people realize that no bitcoin's actually like the gold caliber of of digital go of digital money um it is not uh sort of the first iteration of yeah, yeah, totally. I think I think part of the reason that people get caught up in that concept of it just being like a thing that's going to be replaced is that they don't have experience with open source software projects. Mm -hmm. Because an open source software project, it's not it's not really competitive the way like Coke and Pepsi were competitive, right? There's no there's no real secrets and there's no reason that an open source software project can't take in ideas that are useful somewhere else. Um and uh, and to kind of put that, put it in perspective of history, they're all the way back to like 19, maybe early nineties, maybe a little, maybe even late eighties, there was some work being done on this stuff. Um, but DigiCash was a big deal a long time ago and people had a lot of hope for it. And there's been several iterations, you know, including hash cash and B money and, um, and probably, you know, a, a dozen smaller ones, um, that have been attempts to to create secure money. So an open source software project really isn't a piece of software. It's really a mission. So like MySQL or Linux, um, it was it was a group of people that were trying to solve a problem. And if somebody solved the problem better elsewhere, they sucked in those ideas and they shared and collaborated. And the only thing that's really different about Bitcoin is that the mission is to create a secure money. Um, and so if somebody else creates a, let's say a, a digital uh, asset, a digital currency, however you want to say that, um, that is more secure or better than Bitcoin, um, we would want to just bring in those ideas. The only thing that's a little bit of a catch is that with something uh, that's a secure money, you can't, it's not just a piece of technology. It's also um, uh, a unit of account, right? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to create something that's really, really hard to steal, not just hard for your neighbor to steal, but also a government or anybody else, right? A corrupt government to steal from you. Um, and for it to be money, it has to be that thing that most people in the area own, right? It's like the, the store of value concept. Um, and really that's just a precursor for it to becoming a unit of account. And what that means is that when you ask yourself, how much money do I have, or what's my net worth, or, you know, last month was really expensive because we had to replace the tires on the car. Do you do that math in Bitcoin or do you do it in dollars or something else? So the mission of it being a secure money requires mass adoption. And, um, and that's why if we come up with something else in another open source project and we don't honor the existing balances, that could actually, even though technically it's a move forward because we have a, a more secure piece of technology, it could be a step backwards in the mission. So for me, I don't really care whether we call it Bitcoin or whether we call it anything else. I just want to achieve that goal, right? I want to get to the top of that mountain where we all have a secure money. And, uh, and part of that, I believe, uh, is honoring the existing balances 
in order to um, not slow adoption, right? So if Mimblewimble or something else pops up and and it's better, um, and I wouldn't say Mimblewimble is better, but if it was better and it it was an altcoin that replaced Bitcoin, even though it's better, it would actually hinder the mission of Bitcoin. Um, and uh, and as long as it doesn't hinder the mission of Bitcoin, to me, that's Bitcoin, right? I don't care whether we call it Bitcoin or whether we call it Blockcoin. Um, if it honored the existing UTXO set so it didn't slow adoption and was better, that would be Bitcoin to me. Okay. And then, yeah, so Mimblewimble, for those of you that don't know, it's uh, that's another uh, cryptocurrency that was that was dropped on a mailing list by an anonymous creator. Um, correct? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was... Um, uh yeah it was just dropped it was posted on a irc channel or something um and uh yeah we don't you know we don't know exactly uh who the author was and it's it's pretty cool i mean it's got some really interesting technology in it um but and i was kind of concerned about it for a while um i think i listed in the bitcoin threat model as a as a sort of a threat um to to bitcoin and again when i'm saying it's a threat to bitcoin it's not I define Bitcoin in the threat model as a mission of creating secure money. Um, so the only reason it's sort of in my mind a threat to Bitcoin is that it doesn't honor the existing UTXO set, right? So it could slow down that progress. Um, but uh, yeah, it was dropped out there anonymously. It's it's pretty interesting and creative. Um, and I was a little concerned about it uh, for a period of time. Um, I'm less concerned about it now uh, that we're making so much progress on confidential transactions and schnorr signatures and that sort of stuff um and the reason i was concerned about it is it's such a big rewrite it might have fallen into the category of something that um something that we couldn't just adopt into bitcoin and that's the other thing that i try to remind people of if if anybody does anything useful in an altcoin there's like a 99 percent chance that if it was useful we would just copy that into Bitcoin, right? Um, it's an open source project. There's not like an ego involved and this is not different sports teams, right? Like uh, this is a open collaborative sort of experience uh, writing open source software. Yeah, and that's uh, that's sort of what I see the value of the altcoin space as is, is testing out these ideas that um, could be interesting if implemented on Bitcoin, but we're not sure how they play out in, in the wild. Um, I'm a little more cynical than that because um, like what most what most people will say that are really high on Bitcoin will say is, yeah, 99% of the stuff in altcoins is is scams, but you know, there there's probably a, you know a gem here and there. My perspective is it's all scams. It's a hundred point zero percent a scam because there there hasn't been anything that altcoins have done that worked and was useful and was brought back into Bitcoin. And that's not because they're all egomaniacs in Bitcoin. It's because really what's happening in the altcoin space um, and confidential transactions in Monero is is a good example because it's the least scammy scam coin. Uh, I just spent some time with Fluffy Pony. I think he's a good guy, but but I still think Monero is a scam. And yeah. the reason is that, um, and it, it's good, it's illustrative of what the best of the best in the altcoins are. And what it is, is somebody in Bitcoin, Greg Maxwell, uh, developed confidential transactions. It's a really good idea, but it's not ready for prime time yet, right? It, it doesn't work. It's just too big. It's too yeah. slow. It's a great concept. You know, I'm talking a couple of years ago, right? A year or two ago, something in that range. 
Um, and, uh, and Monero picks this thing up, right? It's like picking up the, the throwaway scraps off the cutting room floor and they turn it into an altcoin that now has, has a significant market cap. Well, Greg hasn't stopped working, right? And, and he's continued to progress and publish new innovations related to confidential transactions. And now we're at the point where with bulletproofs and some other things, we think that we actually are pretty much there where it could be both confidential and actually work scale, you know, check all the boxes. Right. And so that's going into Bitcoin. Um, yeah, it's and, and that's as good as it gets. Talking about, uh, gained efficiencies in confidential transactions, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, that has been the whole problem with confidential transactions. They're confidential, but they're absurdly large. So they're useless, right? That that's where we had been for quite a while. Yeah. Um, but I mean, this, not, this space yeah. is moving fast. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that was the gist of the papers that we're not there yet, but we made some strides in making, making confidential transactions more, more efficient. So potentially down the line, they can be efficient enough to be implemented in the protocol. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I think the picture that a lot of people have of the altcoins is like this, uh, it's this whole ecosystem of creative things happening and there's a give and take and, you know, there's strengths and weaknesses. I see nothing but weakness. I see no innovation. I see no contribution. I see no creativity. I see some pretty creative marketing, uh, ranging from, you know, really bad music videos to somebody that's really likable and maybe not even thinking of themselves as doing marketing, but that's that's all I see in the altcoin space right now. Yeah, that's um yeah, you're correct. I mean, like, especially like with the ICOs and and actually uh Mani Bali from Blockstack, um he had a great tweet the other day. It was about um basically saying that all these ICOs are 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 disrespecting like legitimate scientific literature that gets put out there in white papers. Now you have people on Fiverr and stuff writing white papers. You can pay somebody 10 bucks to wait, write right. your white paper. We actually had somebody at Barstool Sports. We had an ICO like firm. There Now there's firms of people going around and saying, hey, we'll help you structure your ICO to create your utility token um, for your company. And they were pitching Barstool, the company I right. work for, on uh, creating a stool coin, a util utility token for a blog. And... I basically had to go. That's actually, that's a good name. Uh, we wouldn't even have to call it a shit coin. That's just a stool <laughs> coin. <laughs> stool coin. That's what you said. Yeah. <laughs> right. But it's amazing. Like they, they literally came and they marketed like, hey, we'll write the, we'll write the white paper for you. It's like, ah, you're bastardizing like this, this legitimate, like white papers are supposed to be legitimately scientific and, and right. academic in a sense. And, and the sort of ICO ERC twenty token mania has has really bastardized that that sort of way of of putting out scientific literature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the term white paper has definitely been completely destroyed. Um, <laughs> I, I would never want to be credited with having written a white paper after what's been done to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of unfortunate. Uh, but it's just a face, right? I mean, I, uh, the altcoins haven't really been major players, um, ever. And, um, there's a lot of people yeah, that are going to get taken, but it's, it's a short lived thing. Um, same thing with, with ICOs. Um, although ICOs are interesting because I think there is something there in that eventually stock ownership will be digital. Um, and so that capability and actually, gosh, I, 
now this is Nick Zabo. Um, so Nick Zabo is, you know, arguably responsible for ICOs. Um, he was the one that was leading the charge on colored coins, which is a good idea. Um, and that can be done on Bitcoin. Um, I think the thing that's interesting is that it was like the killer. This is another example of just how stupid the altcoins are. The killer app of Ethereum was colored coins that was developed on Bitcoin years earlier. Um, but nobody was greasy enough uh, to run around and try to market that as something that people should do right now um, because the SEC is eventually going to come after you. Is that what a counterparty was doing on Bitcoin? Was uh, color coin? Uh, I, I feel like counterparty was doing... Um, uh, yeah, I think maybe, and maybe they were, they were allowing you to, yeah, making it easy to create colored coins maybe on, on, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's probably right. I mean, you could do it without counterparty. Um, but yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And there was also um, a master coin in there somewhere. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of learning a lot of this history retroactively, uh, as well. Cause I wasn't, I wasn't paying attention when a lot of this stuff happened. <laughs> no, that's, that's, there's so much to learn in this space and things are happening at such a rapid pace that it's hard to keep up even if you're paying attention every day. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. And then, uh, one thing I wanted to touch on was the, uh, uh, yeah. So from a dot design perspective, just to me going forward, like if we're going to scale this technology and we're going to make Bitcoin go mainstream, it makes sense to me from a design perspective to have Bitcoin as the protocol level. And you just build layers on top of it that hook into the to the protocol level, and you just want that protocol level to be slow, dumb, and simple to an extent. Just does what it what it markets that it's going to do, which is enable peer to peer censorship resistant transactions. Um, and then you can get get more complicated on layers above it. That's why I look at projects like ethereum and and other altcoins that are trying to do everything on chain just from a design perspective it makes completely zero sense to me like so as a security researcher like coming from a design perspective what would you say what would you say about like sort of a layering model of bitcoin in the future yeah i think it it makes a lot of sense um and i mean there there are different ways to to do there's different ways to skin a cat but um but if if your idea is obviously dumb, don't do that, right? So like on-chain scaling, if if that's what we mean by just arbitrarily increasing the block size, that's so obviously dumb because it gives you a linear increase in throughput, right? Um, and so even if it wasn't a security issue, which it is because it causes centralization, which defeats the whole purpose of Bitcoin because you could just have somebody show up with a gun to some office and now they run the show, right? How's that any different than a bank or... Uh, or just a database in a closet somewhere. Um, so it, it is a security issue, but let's say it wasn't. Um, it, increasing the block size by, let's say, uh, 10 times, that gives you a tenfold increase in throughput, but you have a tenfold increase in the amount of data that you have to slosh around. Um, nobody does that. That is not a good idea when you're talking about exponential networks, right? Like when the Twitter guys or the Facebook guys get together and they have conversations about how to scale and how to increase the number of users, um, especially, you know, when they've only got, let's say 10% market penetration, nobody is talking about trying to double the number of users that they could support, right? That would just be, you'd just be laughed out of the room. Like, what do you do here? Right. Um, 
So, so that is obviously off the table. And so then you can just look at other proposals to solve the problem. And obviously something like lightning is incredible um, because it gives you exponential scaling, right? With um, arguably better security, um, certainly better security for instant transactions. Um, it gives you cheaper transactions. It's just, it's better all around. Why, uh, why is the security better? Because you can do you can do transactions and trust them instantly. Um, so if you send me a lightning transaction, the moment that I receive it, I have a piece of data that if I want, I can convert into an on-chain transaction and I can be guaranteed that that will happen. Um, whereas if you send me a Bitcoin transaction, I really should wait until it gets into the block and you know um, confirmed two or three times uh, or you know or more if I if I really care to make sure I have it. Interesting. No, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. So you basically yeah. avoid so, double. So before Lightning, I could send you $100,000, but you would want to wait uh, roughly an hour. After Lightning, I can send you $100,000, but I can also send you an 18th of a penny, and you can trust that instantly. Yeah, I'm very excited to see uh, the, the emergence of the Lightning Network and sort of uh, that getting that infrastructure getting built out this year. It's definitely still in its nation stages, but you got people like uh, Elizabeth Stark, Jack Mahler's working on, working on making the UX better. And uh, it's a very exciting time. And it could be the ultimate altcoin killer if, if, if it uh, scales the way people think it's going to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, altcoins are kind of divided in my mind into maybe three different categories um, with three different use cases. One is sort of scale, another is privacy, and then the third is smart contracts. Um, I think, uh, lightning is the first useful application of Bitcoin, right? Like it, it hasn't, there's been some niche cases where you could use it and you could argue the store of value thing, but for, uh, for a typical Westerner with a central bank that, that, um, only destroys their, their savings very slowly, almost imperceptibly slow. Um, certainly if you're, you know, less than 20 years old, you haven't noticed that, that the value of money is dropping. Um, for that person, there hasn't been a use case really for Bitcoin. Um, there hasn't really been an uh, application that is in software, but it is in uh, a problem that it solves for you, right? Um, and Lightning really represents that for the very first time of any of these cryptocurrencies. There's actually an application uh, problem that it actually solves and it solves it credibly, and that's micropayments. Um, and our whole internet infrastructure is based on advertising. Um, and that's because micropayments weren't possible, right? The, the, the 15 cents that Google gets for a certain number of impressions is so painfully inefficient. But when the minimum transaction that you can do is $3 um, and you're going to have, you know, 10 plus percent fraud built into that because um, that's how credit cards work you know, that's the best that we could do. And so we've built an entire new world, right? Like all of cyberspace is built on this really kind of goofy, inefficient thing that has all kinds of problems, right? Like spam is related to that spam in your Twitter feed, spam in your inbox, um, spam on your cell phone, right? All of this is related to the fact that we can't do micropayments. Um, and Bitcoin has just solved that problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, isn't there like a, similar to a 404 error when they originally built the internet they wanted to have a native payments layer but it was never like argued yeah that I, I, think, I think i think there was some 
Yeah, there was probably some proposals to to do some of that sort of stuff in TCP/IP. I mean, Hashcash was sort of an idea to to deal with that problem also, where um, you'd have to do a certain amount of computation for somebody to receive an email from you. Um, so you you couldn't you couldn't cheaply spam a bunch of people, right? It would it would actually cost you something. Um, so yeah, there there's been a there's, I mean, it's it's a real central problem, right? Like I, I think a lot of people look at Bitcoin and think that it's just kind of this goofy thing off to the side, but it's been a central problem um, really for humanity, but certainly for the internet for uh, for quite a while. Yeah, no, and that's why it was so interesting uh, this winter, last fall, um, to see Peter Thiel come out and say, hey, this is actually what we envisioned when we originally built PayPal. Like this is... This is the internet money that we envisioned back in the late '90s, and um, when you have somebody like that who's whose experience is Peter saying, saying that Bitcoin is that legit, like that, that's definitely where you perk up your ears and say, "All right, maybe this is, um, maybe, maybe there's something here." And um, so, one of the themes that that I push on this podcast and sort of in conversations with with Bitcoiners um, is people just need to have more patience. Like it's crazy. Like the, I feel like the all coin bubble has emerged in part because people are so impatient. They want everything out of the box right away. And they don't realize that these technologies take time and they're going to take, they're going to take time decades to build out the infrastructure to make this vision practical. Um, so just on a, like if you were to ballpark how long it would take to, to build out, the infrastructure of Bitcoin and, and the emerging layers above it to, to a point where it's practical for mass adoption. Like how long do you think that would take? Oh man, it's, it's hard to say because like, I'll, I'll tell you what I would say if it wasn't Bitcoin, I would probably say 10 years. Um, cause you really don't get even a full cycle on a software release in less than 24 months in a typical sort of project, right? It takes, takes months to design, it takes months to code, then you deploy it and you start to get user feedback. And, you know, you can do things to accelerate that cycle, but not that much. Um, it's still, it, it's a it's a very labor intensive process uh, producing software. Um, so I would normally like say like 10 years, but Bitcoin is weird. Uh, I wouldn't have expected uh, a year ago, roughly when I really started looking at it, I wouldn't have expected it to be half as far along than it is now. So, I mean, it sounds crazy to say this, but, but if you take like my gut feel of 10 years and then you apply how much faster it's moved than I expect, I would have expected it to maybe five, which just sounds totally psychotic. I, I realize that, but, but, uh, but you have to like, it, it there, the, there's so many things that don't make sense to me about Bitcoin. Um, it, it doesn't yeah. make sense to me that it is not at gold parity right now, right? Like, like nine years ago, we stumbled across this digital rock, right? And this, like, the the this is something that uh, Satoshi uses as an analogy. So forget the forget anything's digital. Just we we're using gold. We're using all these things for money. We're using paper, you know, primarily uh, and uh, entries and databases. And then we stumble across this new element, let's say, right? A meteor hits the earth and there's this new stuff that is scattered all over the place. And we realize that this stuff, we can pick it up. It, it's not really useful for anything, but you can pick it up. Nobody can take it out of your hand, right? It's got this weird property where unless you say a magic word, somebody can beat you to death and they can't steal it from you, right? It's weird, but that could be useful in some way. 
Um, and if you speak the magic word to it, it can be instantly transferred from your hand to anybody else in the globe. Um, and it, uh, it can be invisible if you want it to be invisible. Um, and you can also, uh, subdivide it into this, you know, infinitely small parts. Um, and there's something about it, let's say that where you can just look at it and you instantly know whether it's counterfeit or not, right? There's, as soon as that existed, I would expect pretty rapid transformation of the world, right? Um, and we haven't, we've seen it in a way, but you know, it's nine years. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, uh, one of the ways you could explain that is that we've, we've been adding some of those elements, right? The confidentiality still isn't even there. Um, but it is, it is kind of weird. It's very weird. And I think part of the reason why people haven't, uh, had the reaction that you were expecting is because people don't really understand what money is. Most people don't at least, um, if you have yeah. conversations with people that have said this many times, like that's one of my favorite questions to ask people when we start talking about Bitcoin, they're like, how is it money? I'm like, all right, then what is money? Like, what do you think money is? And then you pull out a dollar bill and you say, what does this represent? And five out of 10 times, at least in conversations that I've had, people are like, oh yeah, that's backed by gold. And like, it's like, no, it's, right. it's not backed by gold anymore. Like people don't understand what money is. And uh, because of that, I don't think they can see the novelty in Bitcoin and, and how big of a, of a transformation it really is or how big of a upgrade it really is to, to the current money that we're using. Yep. I, I think that's fair. I, and actually, I should say that that was one of the things that kept me from, I, I, when I first heard about Bitcoin, I didn't understand economics enough to where it wouldn't have clicked for me probably anyway. Even if I got the technology, I probably would have believed some fallacy about the velocity of money or the need to have uh, you know, a military behind it or something like that. Um, Cause I really didn't get into economics until maybe 2011. And it took me about four years of pretty intensive study before it all kind of, kind of gelled. Yeah. It's um, that's what I decided to study in college was economics and very lucky that I did because I just happened to happened to stumble upon the Bitcoin white paper while writing a paper on monetary policy. Too. That's how I nice. found Bitcoin. Um, very happy yep. to, to study yeah, if, that. So if anybody's interested in, in uh, learning more about economics, I definitely recommend Human Action um, by Mises. It's a, yeah. it's, a, it's a thick book, but it's very understandable. Yeah, I, uh, Pierre Richard was one of my first guests on this podcast, and he, he was telling, telling everybody how he, how he sleeps with a copy of that book next to him. I'll just wake up yeah. and read random passages. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> but one thing, one thing you mentioned there is that money, uh, some people think money needs uh, a government backing it um, with the military, but uh, it's a good segue into to possible threats. So a lot of questions that I get about Bitcoin is like, well, there's a uh, Bitcoin, it's cool and all, but like eventually like a government's going to shut it down and create their own cryptocurrency and everybody's just going to use that. So um, I think this is a good opportunity to maybe talk about some, some threats from governments. Uh, yeah. yeah. Written about. Uh, so what do you think the biggest threat via uh, to Bitcoin from a government would be? Well, so let, let's, uh, let's play that out. We could kind of, uh, I won't look at the threat model, although I'm tempted to <laughs> as far as uh, try to be systematic, but you guys can make fun of me later when I forget stuff that, uh, that that's in the threat model. But um, so let, let's kind of on the fly threat model this, right? So you have this digital currency or you have this thing called Bitcoin and um, 
and the government wants to destroy it. One of the ways that they could do that is they could create an alternative currency, right? They could say, all right, we're just going to make the dollar digital. Well, that doesn't make sense um, because the the only reason people are adopting Bitcoin is that it works better than the dollar does right now. And the dollar's already digital. So in order for them to get people to adopt the dollar, let's say willingly first, um, they would have to make the dollar as useful or more useful than Bitcoin. Um, and in order to do that uh, and get people to be attracted to it and invest in it, one of the things they'd have to do is they'd have to stop increasing the supply of new dollars because as they do that, the the value goes down. But the problem with that is that that's where they, um, so what I'm doing is I'm kind of going through, okay, I want to kill this thing. I'm going to try this sword. Oh, that won't work for this reason, right? That's basically what a threat model is. Um, so if they wanted to, uh, if they wanted to do that, they'd have to stop printing new dollars, right? And and some people believe that Bitcoin is going to cause central banks to do that. But what they fail to remember is, and, and you could see this play out actually. It's interesting. Uh, in the UK, they were apparently, you know, the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing, and everybody got really excited about a digital pound. Um, I believe it was a digital pound. Um, and uh and they got pretty far along in development and then somebody said whoa 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 we're not doing this and the reason is that it, it's it's like somebody walked in the room and said don't don't you guys would know what scam we're running here like <laughs> we cannot do a digital you know we can't digitize this thing and be open and honest and transparent and have a fixed supply uh because that's not the business that we're in right if i can't print new dollars and steal everybody's savings uh why would i even show up to work so they could do it, but um, but why bother, right? Why not just adopt Bitcoin at that point and save yourself the trouble of trying to code this thing up? Um, and so I I think I think that's that's not much of a threat, right? Government's actually creating something that's that's useful. That's just not the business that they're in. They're not confident enough for that. Yeah. Um, and I mean, really, the reason that governments uh, their business model is to be able to like steal your steal individuals savings and assets through taxation and, and inflation um and so it's certainly not in their interest to create an untraceable digital cash um with a fixed supply because they should just retire at that point so i i would say that's not much of a threat i think another one that people are concerned about is that governments will just use violence um, they won't actually create something that people would choose to use uh, if they had a choice, but they'll, they'll use violence to force people. Um, and, and that's, that's not an unreasonable, uh, perspective because that's what they've done in the past with legal tender laws and other things that, um, that, that pump up certain assets. Um, so they could do that with Bitcoin. Um, they could outlaw it for example, but the problem is that it's, we, we sort of overestimate the amount of power that governments have a lot. Um, they're, they're kind of like a, a mafia and even a mafia was very concerned about their public relations, right? They, they even took the time to hand out turkeys at Thanksgiving and do things like that um, because it's, it's far more cost effective than just killing people all the time. It's really hard to kill people all the time and, uh, and make money doing that. Um, and you can see that by, uh, you know, the governments that tend to do that more uh, like in, in Africa and places like that where they haven't quite dialed in the, the PR yet. Um, so if, uh, if they were to try to do that, you could ask like how, how successful would they be based on other things that they've tried to ban? And an obvious one, um, would be drugs, right? 
Um, the, the, the reality is that, uh, drugs in the United States, the drug war has been a, a massive spending effort. Um, there's been a ton of money put into that and it's like a trillion dollars or something like that, at least. Right. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm sure that over the lifetime of, uh, the war on drugs, it's far exceeded that, but we'll never know, uh, because they don't, they don't keep accounting records on things like that for a reason. Um, but, uh, but let's just use that as a baseline. Um, I'm not a young guy and I, it, it would have never been a challenge for me to get my hands on cocaine never in my entire lifetime. So if that's a reasonable sort of approximation and they've put all that effort into it, you could say it, you'll probably, even if they did ban it, never have a time where it's hard for you to get your hands on Bitcoin. But then you take that even further and you say, well, drugs are difficult to move around and certainly across borders. And you look at the stuff that's been done, you know, the submarines, the tunnels that have been dug, all that sort of stuff. And they're also hard to pay for. So there's two sides of that transaction. And you look at like pallets of hundred dollar bills buried out in the hills of, uh, you know, South America, um, and, and trying to move that stuff through. I mean, people are swallowing it and carrying it in their stomachs. Right. Um, uh, so somebody got stopped in the airport. They made a fake butt and filled it with cocaine. And got, yeah. And got yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the reason for that is that there's, there's enough demand to overcome the amount of security that you can place on a border, right? It's, it's a real simple equation. How, if we can raise the cost of moving cocaine into the country, X number of dollars, um, that, that will simply increase the price of cocaine in the U S X number of dollars. Right. So the, the more difficult it is to get in, the higher the street price of the, the asset that people want to buy. Um, and that won't go away in, until you probably cross some, you know, magical threshold where people are like, oh, it's just too expensive. I'm not interested anymore. Um, I, I think that, you know, there's no question that that's getting touched right in our, in our lifetime um, regarding drugs. Uh, and uh, so at the end of the day, that's just a much harder thing to move around. It's much harder to smuggle. It's much harder to transact in. Um, and, uh, you know, most of the time it requires face-to-face -face interaction, right, to hand these things off. So I would say that Bitcoin would probably be, I don't know, a thousand times more expensive to ban than illegal drug use in the United States. I think that's really? probably a fair order of magnitude, right? Because, it, I mean, imagine somebody sitting in Mexico with 10 million Bitcoin and saying, okay, there's there's a demand for Bitcoin in the United States. It's selling for a premium of 10%. Is there any doubt in your mind that that stuff is showing up in here? And probably that premium is getting arbitraged away in a week, right? Um, drug Drugs are totally different, right? The amount of cocaine that you can buy in, uh, in Colombia um, for $1,000 is a lot more than the amount of cocaine that you can buy in New York City for $1,000. Um, and so I, I think probably a thousand times is is not an unreasonable comparison on the difficulty of moving that asset to the people that want it and it is probably a great underestimate really and um yeah so do you think it would it would never be feasible for for a government to go door to door and find node operators to sh and smash their hardware that's that's sort of the conclusion that i've come to that like, if you were governments were to shut down Bitcoin, they'd have to do it in one foul swoop and literally go door to door and crush, crush these. Well, it, it, it'd even be harder than that because you'd have to go door to door globally. Um, yeah. because I can use a node that's in Mexico. Um, really 
really what you'd have to do to pull this off is you'd have to get rid of encryption. Because if I can encrypt communication between the United States and Mexico, um, you don't know if, if it's running a node or not. Uh, there's, there's, there's things that can be done. We're not doing a lot of it right now, but, um, but as long as encryption is allowed to exist on the internet, um, you're not going to be able to prevent people from exchanging digital information without your knowledge. Cause that's, that's what encryption does. Um, and that's why the cypherpunk movement really was born because they said it's, it's game over, right? The moment that encryption existed, oppressive, corrupt governments cease to exist. And now it's just a matter of allowing, uh, the, the history to evolve. Right. And we want to be a part of that, right? We want to, like, as a cypherpunk, I see myself as basically an abolitionist, right? And uh, and it's just after the Industrial Revolution. And you can look around and go, you know what? Human slave labor is no longer cost-effective, so it's going to end. Um, but can I help accelerate that by 2% in my lifetime or 0.002% in my lifetime? Yeah, it's fascinating. And so that's one, one of the uh, books one of the uh, Tales from the Crypt book club books that uh, that we talk about a lot is Sovereign Individual. And they talked about this and being born at an inflection point where this technology just sort of emerges in our lifetime and sort of changes the whole paradigm. And again, going back to people not realizing the sort of the the magnitude and the gravity of this, this technology. Um, it really hasn't hit people in earnest yet, but it's going to change our lives in ways that we can't even imagine right now. And it's, it's, things are going to get weird. That's what I was having a conversation yesterday. I got grabbed coffee with somebody to talk about Bitcoin. And so my view is that if Bitcoin becomes successful, like people have to realize like things in, in the world that we're used to, like really, go to shit to a certain extent. Do you think that's a fair assessment? You know, I, I, I don't think in the long run that that's, that's true. I no. don't know what the transition looks like. So I I'll, I'll, I'll admit that I, that I got a little pansy when I saw it hit 20,000 because I thought, all right, if this is the tipping point and we're really running at it like this, um, if it hits 200,000, you know, 2 million in the next year, then, then uh, that, that may be a little too fast for me to be comfortable with. But part of that is that I'm, I'm so spoiled, right? Like when I look at it from my perspective, I have everything that I need, right? I have everything that I want. I've never, you know, growing up in the United States, I've never um, had a day where I was like, I wonder if I'm going to eat or I'm hungry and it's not within like, you know, 45 seconds, there's food in my mouth. So so for me and, and, uh, and the people that I love and I'm most connected with, um, the possibility of the federal government getting defunded in the next 18 months is pretty scary. Um, on the other hand, if I'm in Yemen right now, um, or if I'm in Africa where my entire continent has been relegated to the dark ages because it's not allowed to trade with the wealthy nations of the world. Um, it's, it's effectively, you know, we've all agreed to go to war against Africa for some reason and just embargo them as an entire continent. Um, if I'm there, then I probably have a different perspective on, uh, on the empire and how it's provided for its, its citizens and those that aren't its citizens. So, um, but you know, in the long run, right. So in the short run, there, there may be some weirdness, right. If, uh, if you look at what happened in, uh, in, you know, certain, low-income neighborhoods when the welfare checks slowed down it got really really bad and really really dangerous you know in, in neighborhoods outside la 
Um, and if the federal government gets defunded, we, we have large populations of people uh, that are not productive and have had a generation of more of not being productive. Um, and uh, that's a scary situation, right? Like it usually takes time for, for, um, for a community to transition into being able to provide for itself. Um, and I don't know what that looks like for those folks in the short term. I'm, I'm hoping that there's going to be more than enough generosity and charity, um, uh, to make up for that, but, but it's questionable. It's, it's a real kind of a scary thing, especially if it happens fast. Um, but on the other hand, the amount of wealth and productivity that is stolen and just destroyed right now is staggering. Um, the, the economists talk about the seen and the unseen. So we see things like the, the government built a bridge or the government built a monument. What we don't see is the amount of uh, resources that had to be extracted away from productive people and put in the hands of unproductive um, people uh, in order to, to make that happen. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll use the example of uh, NASA, right? Like we all get really excited that we went to the moon. But we went to the moon before we had invented calculators. That's probably not the way society would evolve. And it's probably not the most efficient way for society to evolve. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we were using slide rules. I mean, there, there were some simple uh, calculating machines that were being used. And calculating machines go back to at least World War II. But, but the average engineer that was trying to calculate a trajectory was using a slide rule when we put people on the moon. Now, I, I, I can't say for sure that that's not the right way to do it, but my guess is that we probably would have ended up with iPhones before we were on the moon. Um, and we probably would have, if that's true, then we would have gone through that process more rapidly, right? So the, you know, flying cars, uh, having colonies on Mars, whatever it is that you, you're looking forward to us getting to, um, it, what government does is it takes things from people that are productive and are using those in the best interest of humanity. Um, and that's, that's evidenced by the fact that there's, when there is, that there's honest profits, right? So I'm making tennis shoes. People are buying my tennis shoes. I'm making 15% margin. That means that I'm producing and I'm providing for humanity in, uh, in a pretty optimal way with the resources that, that I have at my disposal. And what government does is it comes in and takes money from those people and then, uh, uses it for things that are, are certainly less productive and often just absurdly unproductive. So if you multiply all of that wasted productivity and all of that lost human creativity and all of those resources taken out of the hands that are the people that are most effective at using it for our benefit, it's really quite possible that that all of the fears that I have about people having to make a transition from being um, being net beneficiaries of of the slave state uh, into being, you know, uh, break even or better, it could be just a blip on the radar compared to the amount of waste uh, that we have in the system right now. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if it was more like the the fears that people had in the American South when they were looking at the destruction of slavery. And they were thinking, how are we going to provide for all of these people? How is this all going to work out? You know, these, these people have been in the case of the slaves and in, in the case of the slave, you know, political class down there, they've been uh, very dependent on the system and it's going to be removed. Um, how are they going to be able to transition and not starve in the process? And looking back on it, that wasn't that big of a deal uh, because it turned out that slavery was already so, um, so wasteful that, um, 
that there was just more productivity and more production for everybody once the you know once the once the beating ceased um so it could yes. be like that here i mean we we could be if we if we defunded the federal government uh by adopting bitcoin we could look back on it and go what were we worried about these guys were consuming 70 percent of everything we produced how is it possible we were worried we weren't going to be better off that's what uh a lot of people are scared though a lot of people can't it's envision a, a world without a government yeah it's it's a big change i mean it's it's a really 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 big change um but a lot of people couldn't envision a world without uh without racial slavery in the south um, it's if you've grown up under it it's really hard to imagine a world without it and we're also entering a phase of like human existence that it, it it's probably more akin to if slavery was global right and everybody had been raised in some form of slavery for thousands of years and then it went away um i think that's probably more on the order of yeah yeah exactly yep yep um so so my definition of slavery um i also have a human threat model up on on, on my website um those are the two things that i'm most proud of is the bitcoin threat model and the human threat model um and the the human threat model basically looks at that uh, humanity is if it's an open source project and talk looks at all the different ways that you could attack humanity and prevent it from accomplishing its mission. Um, and I, I assume that humanity's mission is to make the world delightful. Right. Um, and, uh, and so basically some form of slavery is the only way that you could do that because, um, because, periodic raids are just not as cost effective. And we've, we've over time, we've evolved to select things that are, that are really cost effective. So racial slavery, not, not as cost effective way for me to take your stuff from you on a regular basis. So again, uh, let's assume my definition of slavery for the moment. And that is that, um, that I periodically take your stuff from you. Um, if you are, if you're Chinese and, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm white, and I say, okay, you're going to be the slave class, right? And we're just going to oppress you and we're going to take your stuff periodically. That's not super cost effective because you're going to want to kill me and, uh, and you're going to work really hard to do that, right? If, if given the opportunity, um, I'm a dead man. Um, and in addition to that, you're going to work as little as possible, right? You're not motivated to produce. Um, so there's all kinds of downsides to that, that, and, and really after the industrial revolution, that relationship no longer worked because I would have to put so much resources into beating you into submission that, uh, that you wouldn't produce that much. Um, and I, you know, once we have mechanical labor and factories, it's much better if I just don't treat you as badly and give you some tools. Right. So that's why, that's why racial slavery ended, um, to bring that to kind of where we're at now modern day slavery has evolved to where I take your stuff by just printing dollars, right? I force you through the threat of violence to, to use dollars or yen or whatever. Um, and then I either tax you periodically, right? I just make you write me a check. Um, but that's got some downsides, right? I mean, it works, it's still viable. Um, but if you know anything about it, like a cash business that operates in the United States or in France, those people don't pay taxes. Um, and so that's, that's kind of a downside, right? Um, it's, it's a big cost for me as the slave owner to be able to just take, to, to force you to write checks because I have to know how much you make as far as income, if, if I'm taxing you based on that. Um, 
And if I tax you based on the property that you own, that gets a little dicey because then I end up having to take property from old people or sick people. And so I got to keep that rate really low to where that doesn't happen too often, or you get really pissed off and try to kill me. Right. Um, so uh, the best way that we found so far to maintain that relationship of, of a uh, slave and slave owner is I force you to use dollars. And within a couple of generations, you don't even notice, you don't know that it's not backed by gold. Um, you don't know if I'm taking gold out of the vault. Um, you don't know that the fed doesn't get audited and that they've told Congress if we ever got audited, the whole system would fall apart, right? Like you're just not aware of these sort of random things that economists and anarcho-capitalist weirdos are into. Um, all, all you know is that you have dollars and uh, you can buy stuff with those dollars and they're pretty convenient and you know they, they more or less work and you more or less know that if you can buy a car this year with $10,000, you'll be able to buy a car next year with $10,000. Um, and all I have to do is just increase the money supply, right? I just have to print more dollars and then I can keep those or I can give them to my buddies and, you know, I can, I can benefit from that. Um, and that essentially steals your savings, right? If you have $10,000 in savings and I double the money supply, now you have $5,000 in savings. Um, and that's especially, that works especially well because, um, because humans are always building new tools. So if you can buy a pair of shoes for $100 this year, Next year, you're still probably going to be able to buy a pair of shoes for $100. You might even be able to buy a pair of shoes for $98 or $95. Meanwhile, those shoes should cost you $80, but you don't know that. So I've stolen from you in a way that you don't even realize that you're poor from because I've basically stolen the productivity of you and your peers um, without anybody's knowledge. So that's really cost effective. And especially if I can create uh, theory, economic theories um, and teach those economic theories to you from, you know, five, six years old in school that I'm just looking out for you and I'm trying to stimulate the economy and I've got to keep your crazy animal spirits in check or whatever. That's another layer of really cost effective PR. So so the, the name of the game when it comes to slavery is to uh, is to do it in a way that the slaves are most happy. Um, they notice that they're being fleeced the least. And at the end of the day, I'm able to take their stuff without them wanting to kill me. Um, so that's where we're at right now. And, uh, and that's a global thing, right? There's not an, there's not a postage square piece of earth that you or I can run to where we will not be forced to use a currency that's being inflated by a central bank. Um, and so I would say that that's, you know, worldwide slavery, but it, it is coming to an end and all of that, uh, all of that productivity and, chaos that that creates in the economy is coming to an end. So there, there may be a scary transition period, but I, I bet we probably overestimate it. Very interesting. Very interesting insight there. Wow. Um, that's one, it's a touchy subject. People don't even like to say the word slavery and get, uh, they get, uh, they get freaked out by it to talk about, uh, to talk about it in this way, but I think it's important. Um, like you said people are just sort of passive and sort of passive uh un, they're really don't even understand what's happening to them i mean when when you talk about the nature of fiat money and, and how it works and how it's created and what that means is that like you said like people are just born into the system and and don't realize what's happening to them they just expect hey this is the way the world works but um, that's why I've been drawn to Bitcoin, uh, in particular is because, Hey, this is, this is going to change the way the world works. And that's one thing 
that they talked about in the sovereign individual. As soon as you have these these cyber monies that are that are cryptograph that are encrypted or excuse me that are secured with encryption that that no government can confiscate, it's going to completely flip the table and 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 mark the the death of the nation state and. Again, going back to what I was saying earlier, like people can't imagine a world without a government. So sort of maybe this is something we can dive into is what would a post nation state world look like in which we have a monetary system built on something like Bitcoin? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I do kind of want to throw out a, I don't know, sort of a disclaimer, and that is that. When a lot of people hear me say I consider myself a slave, they think what a selfish, like self-absorbed person, right? Like you're sitting there in uh, in air conditioning and climate control, and uh, you know the you've never had to be concerned about how much uh, steak you can afford, right? Um, because it's like yeah, uh, it's not even a, it's not even a, a stressor in your life, right? If you want to um, if you want to go to the grocery store and grab you know, five tomatoes and a steak, right? It's not, it's not going to even impact your budget in a massive way. Right. Um, and that's all true that, and I'm, I'm super grateful for that. And I feel like, um, I do take that for granted. And I think we all take that for granted. I can't imagine what it would be like to be in a world where, you know, a significant number of people die in childhood. Right. I, I know that exists in certain parts of the world, but still in a very small degree compared to what it was in the United States, you know, 150 years ago. So it's not that I'm not grateful. It's just that I'm grateful not to the state and not to the government for providing that because I don't believe that they have. I'm grateful to all of the um, all of the creative people in the world that have created a world in which I could be born into like that. And uh, all the people that have worked hard and built tools and then handed those to their children over hundreds and hundreds of years that's resulted in this environment. Uh, and I'm not grateful to the state that has taken the tools out of those people's hands and used them in inefficient ways to cause things that are not as productive. So I think that's yeah, important so to point argue, out. You would argue we've gotten to where we are in spite of the government. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep, yep, that's a good way to say it. Um, and uh, okay, so what does a world look like without um, without uh, a government? I think I think one of the things that I would say is that I'm not sure that what anarcho-capitalists, uh, Murray Rothbard is, is um, the guy that, that's most at the forefront of this. Um, for living figures, you can look up Hans Hermann Hoppe. Um, a good book would be uh, Democracy, the God That Failed. Um, but what these guys are advocating is not the end of government in the sense that most people think of government, because we're not talking about the destruction of um, uh, military. Uh, we're not talking about the destruction of security services. We're not talking about the end of law. Um, we believe that the rule of law needs to continue and is absolutely necessary for human survival. We're not picturing a utopia where you don't have um, people trying to steal your stuff or kill you and you need to be able to organize and defend against that, right? Um, and that is what most people think of as a government. And so I, I kind of hesitate to say that we're talking about the abolition of government or the destruction of government. What we're really talking about is creating a government, if that's your definition of government, or a system of government that doesn't rely on slavery. Um, and that's that's very possible and it's been done uh, at various times and to various degrees throughout history. So let's look at, uh, let's look at something like private security. Um, uh, military, we'll put that all in one category. You need a service as a consumer 
to make sure that somebody doesn't steal your stuff or kill you. Um, right now, what we have is we have somebody that forcibly takes your stuff on a regular basis and then prevents other people from taking your stuff or killing you. That's suboptimal because you're, uh, you, what you want is you don't want your stuff taken in the first place. You don't want like one guy to take your stuff regularly and prevent others from doing that. That's, that's not really what we're looking for. So one way that that could be provided for, um, is, is the same way that we have food provided for food is just essential to your and my survival, arguably more so than, uh, than security services and defense. Um, it's and that, what's that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's higher on the hierarchy. Who's, who is that? I don't know, his name slipped in my mind. Maslow. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and you know, you could say, uh, water too, right. Uh, but we'll use food because it's, it's most obviously provided for by the free market. Um, you don't, you don't need in order to be able to get tomatoes, you don't need a single provider of tomatoes that shows up at your house and extracts money from you and then provides you tomatoes on a regular basis. Um, somehow inexplicably, inexplicably, um, a bunch of free people work really, really hard every day to find ways to provide you tomatoes as cheaply as possible. Um, these things are imported from all kinds of different parts of the, the world when the temperature is right. Um, we've done with, you don't have to buy it, but people have done genetic engineering on tomatoes so that they're ripe and fresh when you want them. Um, and all of that happened without the government. Um, so there's no, there's no good argument to say that the government doesn't have to provide you food. And many people have argued that governments do have to provide food instantly, um, throughout history, but that that's, it's so patently absurd now that it's, it's really tried. Um, especially, especially when our government, uh, designates pizza sauce as a vegetable, you know, Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're not good at really anything except for, uh, you know, in a lot of people's mind, they're not good at anything except for providing defense. Um, and there's not a good argument for why defense is this one magical special thing, um, that the market can't provide. Um, and so if you look at something like security, there's more people in the United States that um, there's more money spent in the United States on private security than there is government security. Um, so we're already we're already experiencing the benefits of free market security. If you look at um, all of the security guards that are that are operating that keep people's property safe, um, all of the private security that keep people that are um, likely target safe, right? If, uh, if Beyonce has somebody break onto her property, she's not relying on 911 to respond, right? Uh, so private security is already, uh, bigger than public security. Um, and I, I think that's, that's worth knowing. Uh, would, go you ahead. That? would you measure that like sec private security forces versus like a police force a military combined or just like a yeah, police force? Yeah. Yep, exactly. Uh, I think, I think actually it's probably police. I don't think that it includes, uh, um, I don't think it includes military. Um, but, but I don't know. I'd have to look that up. It, it's, it's, it's a surprisingly large number though. And it may even be bigger than military, but man, we're, we're spending a lot on military now. So I'd have to go look it up to be sure that I believe that, uh, presently, but, um, but so you, we do we do see that in play. What, what this would practically look like, just to give you guys a real quick overview, is instead of somebody showing up and they're taking my money every month, I would I would hire. And this is 
this is the challenge of trying to say how things are going to work in a free market before they've been worked out, because these problems will be solved by tens of thousands of entrepreneurs competing together, finding solutions that work in the marketplace and being rewarded for it based on their creativity. And I am at best one entrepreneur trying to project into the future solutions to tens of thousands of problems, right? So it's going to, whatever it is, it's going to be far, far better than this. But um, Murray Rothbard's uh, proposed that it, this is one of the ways, and he offers that caveat as well, that this could work. So instead of paying taxes and having money stolen through, um, through inflation, I could pay for insurance. And my insurance, let's say, is $1,000 a month. And the insurance is that me and my family will not be attacked physically um, by either anybody local or foreign nations or whatever else. That money would then be used uh, by the insurance company because what they want to do is they want to minimize the likelihood that they have to pay out. So they would hire private security services um, to either cover an area, uh, cover a specific place, and maybe even uh, build um, anti-aircraft uh, weapons and put them in various places, right? So they're going to be financially incentivized to address that. That sounds completely absurd, but again, you got to imagine that you're you're a slave or you're a slave owner in the American South, and I'm trying to explain to you how we're going to have cotton without slavery. Um, it's 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 going to sound uh, completely ridiculous, and again, that might not even be how it works. But uh, but the major principle is that there are we can envision ways that it would work, and we know that the free market has solved every single problem we've ever put in front of it. And that if you try to point to an example of where the free market has failed, it's always actually an example of where government has intervened on the free market. Um, so once you accept that, and that that's true, and I can defend that a lot easier than I could try to imagine exactly how this is all going to play out, um, it's a lot less scary to uh, to say that these problems are going to be solved by you know cooperating individuals. Um, another another random fact for you is that. There's only maybe a dollar, I think it's a dollar fifty per person uh, spent on police services in New York City. So if you spent, say, $100 a year, um, you and, and the neighborhood and the people around you are willing to part with $100 a year, you would have 100 times more money to spend on defense than is being spent on your behalf right now if you're in New York. Um, that that's a lot that's a big difference right we're talking about a, a hundred times like a two two magnitudes uh, increase in budget and then um if you if you believe that the market is more efficient at solving problems let's say 10 times more efficient than government um and i think even like spacex uh even though that's a subcontractor people are saying wow this is obviously a whole lot more efficient than what we had going on in the past um but look at food production, look at iPhone production, look at any of the things that you like and enjoy and imagine saying, we're going to assign government to solve that problem. Now we're not going to let the market participate. I think saying that those things are going to be 10 times crappier and 10 times more expensive is reasonable, right? Mm -hmm. So that's another hundred fold uh, sort of efficiency gain, right? So if you buy that, now you're reasonably uh, I think it's reasonable to assume that the average person is willing to spend a hundred times more on their private security and that there's going to be a hundred fold gain in efficiency. Um, if, if the free market's able to do that. So you're, you're looking at a, a significant, uh, improvement in a dollar for dollar, the, the quality of the security services that you should expect. And we haven't even talked about the fact that, um, I mean, Iraq was caused by 
the United States, right? Like we, we are, uh, the 9-11 was a result of the Saudis. Um, and the Saudis are one of our biggest allies. And, uh, and we have never, we have never given more, uh, military hardware to any country in the history of the world than the Saudis. Um, one of the last thing Obama did before he left was sign that huge weapons deal with the, with the uh, Saudis, right? Yeah. 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 I, I believe that, uh, I believe there's been some more deals since then too, but, um, but, uh, so we're talking about, uh, maybe a 10,000 fold in improvement and, and we're, we haven't even addressed the possibility, right? Uh, you, you may or may not agree with this, but the possibility that sometimes, uh, the U S military actually makes our personal security more expensive through their actions than less. So it's, it's not a real terribly hard argument to make when you try to look at very specific things, but as a day-to-day -day experience, you know, it, it's hard not to having been raised under a lot of propaganda, um, believe that it's impossible to, to be safe without, um, uh, without somebody taking your stuff and using that to fund a military. Yeah. I think that's going to be the biggest hurdle for people to overcome is, is the notion that the government is essential. We need a military. We need, we need all these protections. We need, uh, we need help. Um, we need, uh, somebody to help save us from ourselves to an extent. Right. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think the best, the best thing to do is just to look into how much you're actually getting. Right. I think it's really shocking to find out how little is being spent per person on, uh, on police. Um, so even if that was really efficient, um, I think you could, you could definitely imagine that you could do better than that. Um, uh, just, just even being less efficient and just spending more money on it. Now the one, um, the one, uh, tale of government inefficiency, which actually, uh, is actually the result of a contractor. It was Halliburton, um, during Iraq. One of the stories that came out of Halliburton that really astonished me was that when, they would set up these these camps over in Iraq for for the American soldiers, and then they would do services for them, like laundry being one of them. And they would charge, if I remember this correctly, uh, during the Iraq War, uh, Halliburton was charging uh, members of the military like a hundred dollars to do their laundry, and then they would return it, and uh, the people the these soldiers would get their, their laundry back and it would either be dirtier than when they, when they gave it to Halliburton or it would just be it, it, like they weren't even doing laundry correct. And they were forcing right. soldiers to pay a hundred dollars to do their laundry while they're at war. And that yep. was, and that's something yeah. that payers were paying Halliburton to. Yep. Yeah. The, what, what we're really looking for with, uh, through anarcho-capitalism or the cypherpunk movement is a system where, uh, everybody is incentivized, um, to do the right thing. So we can look at somebody like, um, uh, like somebody that's operating government. Let's say that you're a police chief of a, a small town and, uh, you know, that the only way that you're going to, um, uh, be paid more is if you have more police officers reporting to you, you have more of a budget, right? Um, and the only way your popularity is going to go up is if crime is a bigger issue than it is right now. 
Um, so we can look at that guy and we can say, well, no, we, we're going to buy into the myth of the selfless public servant. We believe that this guy has no interest in it for himself. Um, and that he is, he's Jesus incarnate again, and that all he's going to do is care for the needs of others. And he's going to make all of his day-to-day decisions based on that. Um, that's, that's maybe not the most absurd assumption. So we'll go with that for a minute. If he does that, he's going to do things that keep crime low, right? Little, little decisions throughout the day that nobody would even notice, um, that, that result in, you know, over, over 10,000 decisions in a year, a significant impact, right? Um, but now let's assume that he has a family. Um, now we've gone even more absurd because we have to assume that this guy is not only going to make decisions for the community, for the better, betterment of the community. Um, but he's okay with not being able to pay for his kid's college, right? He's okay with his wife having to go to work and, uh, and take his kids and put them in daycare. And he's okay with all of these things that maybe are not in his family's best interest. Um, so now what we're having to do is assume that this poor guy is not only going to sacrifice himself, but he's going to sacrifice his own loved ones for the benefit of strangers that he doesn't know that that's, let's just say that that's not nice, right? Like, even if that's true, even if that guy is willing to do that, we really should keep working towards a system where he gets rewarded for doing good, not punished for it. Um, even if we believe that he's going to only care about us. Um, and that's, that would be, for example, if uh, instead of having a police chief in this small town, if the town said, okay, we're just going to, we're going to allow citizens to keep their own money, um, we're not going to tax it, and we're going to allow people to buy insurance. And they couldn't do that currently, right? The, the, it's, it's illegal to have this sort of insurance, and it's illegal to have um, a law, a, a reasonable system of law that would allow for this to happen. But Imagine that instead of a monopoly service, people buy insurance to keep themselves and their their families uh, safe, um, and the insurance companies contract out with various different um, uh, security providers to keep the town safe. Um, that doesn't require that anybody sacrifice their own families for strangers' benefits, right? That that can just work. Uh, we've seen it work in multiple other cases and we have no reason to believe it wouldn't work if it was allowed to work now. Um, and so we should, we should think and we should work towards that. And that's what the cypherpunk movement's about. It's just allowing people to set up systems that work, but don't require, um, don't require ridiculous human behavior and don't require, uh, violence against innocent people. Yeah. And it's, I think it's an admirable goal. Uh, in the long run, again, uh, this is a controversial topic. I mean, people people really don't like to to dive into these topics and think in these ways to an extent. Um, they get really defensive and and um, sort of fall back to to what they know, which is a life with the government. Um, and it's hard for a lot of people to imagine life without it. And I'm sort of happy we dove down that rabbit hole. I brought you on to talk about Bitcoin threats, but we. <laughs> heavy into cypherpunks and, and anarcho-capitalism. And I'll be honest, I'm still on the fence. I don't know. I don't know. A lot of people ask me, like, what are your political views? I'm like, I don't know. I don't, I'm still trying to figure that out and play out all these these scenarios and and, and digest all these ideas. And this is one that, that, that really, really uh, sort of resonates with me. Um, just thinking about 
uh, ways in which the world can be better. I mean, I think there's definitely uh, definitely hope in in this sort of movement that like, hey, we can we can make things better for everybody, and and we can really unleash human ingenuity, which um, really uh, again resonates with me. Um, but I know you have to hop on your podcast in 15 minutes. So if we could bring it back to Bitcoin and back to threats of big, uh, that, uh, threats of Bitcoin, what would you consider is Bitcoin's biggest threat at the moment or the biggest threat to Bitcoin at the moment? Yeah, I think, um, I do feel like the altcoin, uh, the altcoin attacks are coming to an end. Certainly the scaling based altcoin attacks um, are sunsetting. Um, I think Litecoin, even Charlie Lee is out of it. So that's probably a good indication that that, that story has probably run its course. Um, I think uh, uh, Bitcoin Cash uh, or Bcash, I think, I think that's in the same boat. Um, it was a scaling based one. And, you know, with Lightning getting more and more deployed, it's getting you're having to get more and more crazy to, to have faith in that that's a good way to go. Um, and I think with Ethereum having uh, kind of run its course to a degree on the smart contract side, I think that that's, that's probably ending. Um, we've got simplicity now being built on Bitcoin and it's actually the way any computer scientist would approach the problem instead of, uh, you know, some, some clown that was previously trying to sell quantum computer simulators because that's easier to build than a quantum computer but has all the same benefits uh shout out to vitalik there um let's and talk, let's talk about ethereum all right let's do it so they their big marketing push more recently is is, is governance on the blockchain and they're <laughs> they're having a lot of issues with that especially this week there was a uh ethereum contributor he was a maintaining the GitHub, he, he actually resigned from that position because of the governance issues that Ethereum's having right now. So if we could sort of lay those out and sort of how uh, Ethereum's sort of argument for governance on um, the blockchain, how that differs with Bitcoin. Yeah, I just got uh, just got hit up from the Block Digest guys that I've got another half an hour if you do. So we're, we're good on time. Um, let's see. So gosh governance on the blockchain so so one of the one of the things that scammers do that that's really brilliant and i i did some research on this um so i can i can claim some uh i don't know some authority on this but the, the i don't know if you guys remember the it's probably still going around so you probably do but the nigerian prince email um so the nigerian prince email one of the things that uh that my team and i was looking at at one point was um why it's so effective it was really really shockingly effective it had a really high rate of people opening the email and a surprisingly high rate of people responding to the email and i i want to say it was almost one percent open ten percent respond which is way better at the time i mean way way better than an email from aol or an email from uh somebody trying to get you to buy shoes right i mean it was just it was just amazing um, and so once we started looking at it, we realized something even more amazing. And that was that the response rate um, for some, some versions of the Nigerian Prince email was much higher than others. And that the ones that had the higher response rate didn't have spelling errors. And we thought, okay, that kind of makes sense, but that's weird. Why 
is the spelling, why do they both exist in the same time and space, right? Like, like uh, even if you are some guy that does not speak English and you're just copying and pasting, you would think that within a relatively short period of time that the version without the spelling errors would be the one that was copied and pasted, right? Um, that somehow these guys would coordinate and realize which emails were most effective, which versions, even if you didn't know how to read this stuff, you'd be able to, because these guys are AB testing, right? They're, they're not, um, they're, you know, these guys are spending tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars on, on uh, email. And what we figured out was that the reason that the, um, and I, I say we, I'm definitely taking more credit than I deserve right now, but what was discovered was that it was intentional, that they were intentionally misspelling and poorly writing English because they wanted to, um, they wanted to decrease their customer support costs. When somebody actually engaged with a real human, they wanted to make sure that that person on the other end was stupid enough to continue through the scam and end up giving over money. And if it was well-written, they would get more responses, but those responses tended to include people that were smarter and would end up wasting the time, not going all the way through with the uh, with the scam. So that's how I feel about the altcoin market. Something like Ethereum is so dumb to anybody that has been working in software security for any period of time. Why, that, why is it dumb? Uh, it, it's dumb because I, I, if you go out to, let's see, if you go to jwweatherman.com um, or, or search for JW Weatherman GitHub, I have a, let's see, where is that actually? You know what, hit me up on Twitter if you're interested. JW, or uh, Weatherman I am. Um, hit me up on Twitter and I'll give you a link to it. I've got a link of the top 10 cryptocurrencies and the claims that they make and the technical reality. And every single one of them makes claims that don't take very long to see that they don't match up to the technical reality. So, um, so Ethereum, for example, it claims to be able to do smart contracts, right? That's kind of the, the whole thing they took the one approach to smart contracts that you cannot take it to smart contracts to be successful. And that is to try to be Turing complete. That's the one weird decision that you can't make and you can never redo to end up in a good place. Right. Um, and, uh, so it, that that's why Ethereum is, that's one of the many reasons that Ethereum is, is stupid. Um, why is Turing completeness not not a good idea? No, it's a good okay. So so the idea of Turing complete is that you can write any, you can basically do anything that's doable with it, right? And that sounds like a good thing, but when you're talking about smart contracts on a blockchain, one of the really important things that you have to be able to do is figure out how much computational power this thing is going to require um, by static analysis, right? You have to be able to just look at the code and say, this is going to take, you know, five, five units of computation and this other one's gonna take 50. Well, if something's Turing complete, you can't do that. Um, and you don't need Turing completeness for smart contracts because you're not gonna build Facebook uh, on top of a blockchain that only gets registered every 10 minutes and is the most inefficient database that humanity has ever conceived of, right? So you can sacrifice that um, that Turing completeness, and you can come up with something that is simpler, easier, um, more understandable to humans, more predictable, but also something that, that, uh, can be subject to static analysis. Um, and of course that's exactly what's happening on Bitcoin right now, right? Like that, that, that process from, uh, guys like Nick Zabo that came up with the concept and have continued to work on Bitcoin didn't stop just because Ethereum 
took some scraps of ideas and slapped them together in a way that doesn't make sense in order to sell. Um, that simplicity was not as, as, I don't know, month ago, I think I was on the world's crypto network with, uh, with Dr. Russell. Um, so there's, uh, that's why it's stupid to me. It, it just doesn't, doesn't make sense. But, uh, but you know, a lot of good marketing, a lot of good unicorns, a lot of good rainbows. And, uh, one of the best, probably the best cryptocurrency homepage I've ever seen, uh, was Ethereum when it launched. I mean, it was beautiful. They, they know how to spend money on design. They know how to spend money on marketing. They know how to put together a narrative to your point. Um, there's nothing as attractive to a lot of Americans as the boy genius, uh, Silicon Valley kid that, you know, just came out of the womb knowing how to code and didn't have to spend 40 years working on the problem the way the cypherpunks did. Yeah, that's the one thing that makes me uber skeptical of Ethereum as a project um, at large is that it's a bunch of young kids. I mean, I'm 26. A lot of the people working on Ethereum are my age or younger, and I think they're showing a lot of hubris to think that they can solve these problems um, sort of at once on one blockchain, sort of out of the box with with as little experience as they have. Could be wrong. Maybe they are. Well, let me, let me take a different angle on why Ethereum is dumb. Um, forget all of the sort of theoretical that I just explained. As of right now, the simplest smart contract that I know of is a multi-signature uh, transaction. Mm -hmm. As of right now, you cannot do a multi-signature transaction on Ethereum. So even if I didn't know anything else, if I just knew that, I would say, mm, not computing, right? It does not seem like a good investment. Um, the, the only sort of killer app that Ethereum has right now, just, so that's, that's a fact that I think if you, if you could fully internalize that reality, you'd say Ethereum's a joke, but let me give you another one. The only application that's really active right now is cryptocurrency or crypto kitties, right? And crypto kitties is essentially pictures of cats, um, that you can buy and sell. Okay. That, that in of itself should throw up some red flags, but let's just say that it doesn't matter because it could be pictures of anything, right? It's a digital asset and it's being exchanged. And that's interesting. The problem is, is that even the CryptoKitty folks do not use Ethereum to secure the CryptoKitties. There is no use of the security capabilities of Ethereum to make sure that double spends and exchanges don't happen on CryptoKitties. That's all handled in a database that's completely unrelated. So even the use of trading pictures of cats on Ethereum is vaporware. That's, yeah, because the uh, the CryptoKitties company that started it, right? They, they hold it on their servers, right? Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, it, it really feels like the Nigerian Prince effect, right? Like how many of these one random facts that just show complete absurdity um, can exist while people are still excited about Ethereum? And I know I'm kind of insulting a lot of people right now, and I, I don't mean to because... Um, because all of this stuff is so new and it's just this tidal wave of crazy concepts, right? Like just this interview, I, I feel bad for anybody that just walked in and heard me talk about the end of the federal government, Bitcoin, Ethereum, all this stuff. Like you don't have to be dumb to be overwhelmed. Um, and I, I think, I think they're definitely taking advantage of that moment in time. But again, it's just a moment of time. And, uh, and yeah. I think you can, you can see, I mean, the value of, of Ethereum is still high. Uh, here's here's another random fact for you. In the year 2140, there will be 21 million Bitcoin um, because Bitcoin is uh, is every four years the number of Bitcoins emitted or you know newly awarded 
uh, per 10 minutes gets cut in half. Right now, every 10 minutes, we, we give out 12 and a half as a reward to people uh, running the supercomputers that are running parts of the supercomputer that secures Bitcoin and its transactions. In the year 2140, that stops. Uh, there'll be 21 million Bitcoins total and will be fully dependent on transaction fees to secure the Bitcoin network. How many Ethereum uh, do you think will exist in the year 2140? If you get within an order of magnitude, I'll sell you, I'll send you a Bitcoin. <laughs> don't, no, don't search. Don't look. <laughs> don't go to my spreadsheet where I calculate it. Just, just throw that out there. G give me a guess. So... Italic said like 103 million if they transition to POS, but if that, that's going to be hard. So I don't know, a trillion. That's a that's a reasonable guess. You're actually uh, you're actually pretty close, but no, and you're not within the uh, or you're not within an order of magnitude. So I don't owe you a Bitcoin. Eleven <laughs> quad with a Q, eleven quadrillion, and the reason for that is that Ethereum produces a 10% inflation rate per year. Um, so if there was a million this year, there'd be 1.1 million next year. And after that, there'd be 1.21 million, right? And it doesn't sound like much after two years because we've only gone up by 21%, something like that. But if you extrapolate that out 120 years, um, imagine that you could have a guaranteed 10% return on a bond and you held that for 100 years. There's almost no way you couldn't be a rich man, right? Um, so yeah, it ends up being 11 quadrillion uh, at the current rate. Now that doesn't mean that they won't change it, but that's important to know. It's important to know that one, that they have to change it. So you're just dependent on Vitalik being generous to you and deciding that he doesn't want to do what the Fed has done for the last 150 plus years. And uh, not that it was always the Fed, but central bankers have been doing for a long time and that's continued to inflate the money supply to, their, uh, uh, to the, the detriment of existing savers. Um, but, but the fact that that's even possible tells you how much you are dependent on the goodness of Vitalik. Why not just be dependent on Janet Yellen or whoever is running the, the fed? Because those guys have actually been a lot more generous to you than 10% per year. Those guys have only been inflating the money supply, maybe six or 7% per year. If you're pessimistic like me, I mean, they claim it's two or 3%, but I don't think that's, uh, uh, certainly not in the last few years, but, uh, but on average, I don't think anybody assumes that the dollar has been inflating 10% per year. Uh, even the, even the most hardcore gold bugs, I don't think throw out numbers like that. And, uh, and that's the way Ethereum works. And you're right. They, they have said that if they switch to proof of stake, they can change that. Um, but proof of stake is, is ridiculous also. And there's a reason that there's not a single cryptocurrency running on proof of stake right now. And there never will be. Why is uh why is proof of stake ridiculous? Why do you think there'll never be one running on it? it? It's a good question. So the first question to ask is what problem does what problem does proof of work solve? And the answer is that anybody can take a look at the Bitcoin blockchain and they can be confident beyond any doubt that uh, billions of dollars have been spent in ordering transactions, billions of dollars in electricity and time and effort. Um, and based on the amount of resources that's been dedicated to ordering those transactions, you can be confident in all of the existing balances, right? Um, and you can be confident that there's not more than 16 million coins at play right now, um, which is important when you're investing in a cryptocurrency. Shout out to Ethereum. When you buy something, you should figure out what percentage of the total supply you're buying, not just 
what the arbitrary unit value is. Um, so it, that's important, right? It's important to know all of these things when you're a newcomer into the system. Um, proof of stake doesn't even attempt to solve that problem. So a newcomer coming into the system has to trust everybody that's in play right now. Um, and that's silly because that's not the problem that we were trying to set out to solve. If, if you want to trust people, you can, again, use the dollar. Just trust the central bank. Mm -hmm. So it's a sort of non-starter from... Yeah, it just it doesn't even attempt to solve the problem that uh, that needs to be solved, which is how do we believe that this is all legitimate um, without trusting anybody or anything, just trusting that we can multiply numbers together. That's the only assumption that you have to make when you walk into Bitcoin. We can we can we can multiply numbers and we know how to do it and uh, and it's good, right? Um, with Ethereum, you gotta you gotta trust, uh, or with a proof of stake system, you would have to trust uh, the existing players. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of reasons that you shouldn't trust the existing players. And that's um, it's interesting. There are so many people fascinated with proof of stake and so focused on it. And it's, uh, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think I don't think you should have to trust anybody when it comes to, to cryptocurrencies. Like it should, it's it's a non-starter for me. Like you shouldn't trust anybody. You should be able to download the software and verify yourself. Like. Right. I, I think the reason people are fascinated with it is that there, there's a, there's the ability to say, Hey, you know, Bitcoin's cool, but it's got its problems. And that gets re people really excited about getting in on the next one. But that kind of goes back to just not understanding how open source software development works. Um, it's not that, that sort of environment where there's a lot of secrets being kept and the next big thing is going to be something different. The next big thing is just the next push of Bitcoin, right? It's the next release. It's uh, Schnorr signatures. It's whatever uh, creative thing anybody in the world has come up with. That's the next big thing. And it's going to appear in Bitcoin. Um, but that's, that's foreign. It's weird. It's not the way that, um, that a lot of people are used to thinking about it. Yeah. And that's sort of been my thesis and I've been, what I've been, sort of shopping around telling people in this space that like I think the first two decades we're, we're almost through the first one uh by this time next year we will have will be a decade into this this experiment um and I think for like the first two decades maybe less maybe it happens quicker like you were saying earlier like just people are sprinting out of the gate hanging on the buzzwords like and, and trying to make a quick buck and ruin their reputations ruining reputations sort of by putting their necks out there and completely getting sort of the the innovation of these technologies wrong out of the gate and sort of trying to apply them to old world structures that we're used to um and they're going to find out that it just doesn't work that way and like you're saying that the nature of open source software is is a variable in in that thesis is like people are trying to apply um sort of an app building mentality or company building mentality to these cryptocurrencies and it just doesn't make logical sense from from a design perspective again going back to design and then what pierre and i were talking when he was on the podcast a few months ago is like just think about like the company work we're barstool sports we're we're a blog we're a cms we're a content management system built on wordpress it's hard enough to get that blog to work for millions of people and that's a centralized app that we build in-house and we get to decide what gets pushed. And then when you throw in open source software and you have people, a distributed team coordinating around the world, it's magnitudes of order harder to, to make these protocols and these systems work 
seamlessly. And to think that you're going to be able to create like a world computer built on a blockchain with a distributed system and, and do it in a way that that is successful out of the box, just it logically doesn't matter. The chances of that happening are, are slim in my mind. Yeah. And you're also going to, uh, you're going to do that without the participation of 98% of the open source community that's been working on that problem for 30 plus years. Um, and, you know, I mean, at this point, part of the reason I feel like the Ethereum story is over is that even Vitalik has been tweeting out like, you know, there's other interesting applications other than um, being like, I'll say government resistant, right? Or immutable, I think is the the exact word that he used. So there's there's other interesting applications for blockchain that don't have to be immutable. No, there isn't because the whole point of blockchain is to be a new security technology that is um, not cost-effective to attack and doesn't require any trust. So if he's giving up on that, that's great. He can go compete with MySQL and all of the other technologies that solve the problem that he's interested in solving, whatever that is. Um, I think he's got some efficiency problems to deal with there. But um, but yeah, I mean, the narrative is just getting more and more ludicrous. Um, so your original question was, what's what's next for attacks on Bitcoin, right? I feel like the the altcoin um, the altcoin attacks have, are are kind of working their way out of the system. I think they they've had their moment in the sun, but I think they're ending. Um, one of the attacks that I think is interesting, and I was I was pretty worried about it maybe three weeks ago, is um, Paul Stork with Truthcoin and um, the uh, the attempt to create drive chains. So drive chains has been touted as this you know great technology. Um, and I have that in the Bitcoin threat model. It's actually the only new category of threat I think I've had to add since uh, since I wrote it a couple months ago, maybe six months ago now. Um, and basically, if an attacker uh, wanted to create an insecure layer two protocol, right? So Lightning is a layer two protocol. Um, uh, federated sidechains is a layer two protocol. If somebody wanted to create an insecure layer two protocol, um, what they could do is encourage people to move Bitcoin into that layer two protocol and then hack it themselves and take all the funds out of it. And that would be, you know, somewhat of a windfall, but they could make that attack even more profitable if they short Bitcoin. So if they know they're about to, let's say, you know, there's $200 million in a side chain, they know they're, <clears throat> excuse me, they know they're about to drain the funds out of it. Um, that's a great short opportunity. And you can make a whole lot more than $200 million if you can short Bitcoin before there's a big security issue with it. Um, and uh, uh, so that was an attack that I was really concerned about. Um, and I went back and forth with Paul Stork. Uh, the initial uh, engagement that I had with him was around, hey, you know, I know a lot of people are giving you giving you crap over this thing, but let's just do a threat model, man, because it sounds really cool. I'm really excited about side chains. From what I've heard, it sounds good. So I don't know why everybody's kind of kind of throwing you garbage. Let's let's do a threat model and we can go systematically through everybody's concerns like I did with Bitcoin and prove that it's fine. Um, but uh, but really early into that process with Paul, it became obvious that it's not fine, that if 51% of the miners want to, they can take all of the money out of the side chain. And uh, his his security uh, solutions for that or the safeguards that he envisions for that is one, we can do an Ethereum style soft fork and overwrite that transaction because the funds that you can steal require that they be locked up for say 90 days. Um, and during that period of time, everybody can see, oh, those funds are being stolen. Uh, let's, let's invalidate that transaction, um, which is essentially the, uh, the idea uh, of drive chains is that 
you create this really insecure situation. And if somebody takes advantage of it, you soft fork. Um, to me, that's, that is the antithesis of a security solution, right? I mean, if the solution is you just completely blow off a nuke, right? And you just give up on the whole concept of having an immutable blockchain and we just become Ethereum. Um, now there is a little bit more subtlety to that because you could argue that that is the protocol, right? That Bitcoin has now assumed a protocol whereby if somebody does this thing to try to steal money out of a side chain, it is everybody knows upfront that in that one particular case, under those particular circumstances, we soft fork and eliminate it. Um, I don't like that argument, but I, I'm trying to, I'm trying not to straw man the other side. I'm trying to strong man the other, the other argument. Um, and the reason that I don't like that argument is that I don't think it, I don't think most people, even if I could get my head around that and say, okay, that's part, part of the protocol is to rewrite the protocol. Like, even if I could accept that sort of what I feel like is circular logic, but it's, it's not totally right. Like there, there is a human element to, to the Bitcoin protocol. And so, um, but even if I could get my head around that, it still doesn't make it uh, a less effective attack because I still believe that you could drain the funds or you could at least begin to drain the funds. And I do believe that a lot of people would be, um, would be confused by that. Um, and I also don't know that you could coordinate, and this is the whole point of Bitcoin again, I don't know you could coordinate everybody on the globe to upgrade their Bitcoin software to ignore that transaction. And it, it sets a terrible precedent, right? That, so I have a lot of concerns with the design and I, I don't know if it has stopped. I feel like I have a good safeguard for that, um, which is essentially if somebody starts putting money into a side chain, I'm going to throw up a web page and I'm going to start getting people to support withdrawing all the funds publicly. Like we're just going to say, Hey, we're at 2% hash power and all that money's ours. Hey, we're at 5% hash power. I think that's the best thing we could do to reduce the chances that people put a lot of money into the side chain, um, and that they're unaware of the risks. Um, so I feel a lot better about it post that, but from what I can tell, they're still working on that code. And, uh, and so I'd say that's still something that I, I see on the horizon as an attack. Yeah, that would, that would that would be an interesting one. Paul's been talking about drive chain for years now. Um, admittedly, I researched something very interesting, but again, that yeah, that uh, sort of depending on miners not not being malicious um, is something I I don't know how comfortable I am with that either because you're really uh, putting a lot of trust into the miners when you when you get into drive chains. Right, right, right. Now you trust miners to a degree, um, but not really because. The worst thing that can happen is a miner could either deny if if somebody has 51% of the hash power, um, they could either deny your transaction being executed. They could ignore it and uh, thereby censor it. Um, or if they coordinated with somebody that was paying you uh, a large amount, it would have to be a lot, right? So let's say you're selling your house for a million dollars. If they if they wanted to go through the effort of coordinating they could allow you to receive a million dollars in Bitcoin and then overwrite that transaction within some period of time. And, and so maybe you wait the reasonable uh, 60 minutes and then sign the deed. And then at 80 minutes, they overwrite the transaction, which is something that could that they could do. Uh, so note to everybody, if we ever get really concerned about uh, minor centralization, just wait much longer for your transactions to be confirmed. Um, 
but that's pretty limited, right? That's kind of a goofy, difficult to execute attack. You got to wait for somebody that's about to do a transaction, know who they're going to do it with, know what's going to be, you know, and you got to get something fungible, right? A house isn't going to work because, you know, you could take that to court and say, Hey, you know, I never got paid and, you know, at least tie it up. Um, so it's not like the double spend attack is not all that awesome from the standpoint of an attacker. Um, and that's the worst thing that can happen right now with the 51% attack. Um, but if we have an insecure layer two technology that gives them a lot more ability to just absolutely drain existing funds, just, just, just do a big money grab. That's, that's definitely bad news. So, um, but again, I, I don't know if they, they're saying they're still working on it. Uh, I wouldn't be working on it if I was them, if I was the attacker, you know, it'd be like, ah, cats out of the bag, right? Like, uh, if, if we can now get 200 people to put $200 million into an insecure side chain, which is going to be a hard sell. Everybody knows how we're going to drain it. And there are at least, you know, a couple people that are saying, Hey, yeah, I'll coordinate and I'll drain it before you get there. So, uh, I'm not, I, I wouldn't say I'm super worried about it now, but I, it's, it's one that seems to be still in play. Yeah. We'll definitely have to stay paying attention to that because, um, like I said, that, that does, uh, introduce a certain amount of risk and, and uh, I like Paul though. I like uh, I like Paul's Twitter game. Huge fan. I've been following him for years. But um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see this in the wild. I mean, it'd be scary to see it in the wild uh, again. Going back to how much trust do you have in the miners? And it, it seems like he might be pivoting. I mean, I like him. I I like him too. Like he's very personable. And again, I was. I mean, I started this by just wanting to work on a project with him to threat model out side chains and or drive chains and prove to the world that it's, it was awesome. Um, but it seems like now he might be pivoting to, uh, to kind of the Bcash strategy of just like saying, oh my gosh, the Bitcoin developers are all part of this cabal and they're not going to pay attention to my, my goodness. And, uh, so I may have to fork off and create an altcoin. Um, so we may see that attack turn into an altcoin, uh, attack, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, the good news is that the only attacks that I'm aware of, um, and I, I am pretty engaged in looking for stuff, they, they don't seem to be any more interesting than the ones we've already been through. That's um, that's good to hear from a security expert. But um, that uh, yeah, that's one thing we learned last year. 2017 was the year where we found out users are really in control of this network with uh, no 2x and the user-activated soft fork. Um, at least in my opinion, I think last year was was a huge year in proving that this system is truly decentralized to an extent. It could definitely be more decentralized, but it's decentralized enough that, that a cabal of companies can could, weren't able to to overtake it. And yeah, absolutely. It's pretty amazing that it's still it's a it's amazing that it works. It's been amazing, but it's still amazing. It's an, and it's an ongoing battle, a never-ending battle, and will never end. Um, but one thing that does have to end is this podcast because you have to go to another, to your own. Um, JW, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, it's been a very enlightening and interesting conversation. I think uh, my audience is gonna gonna love it when I post it uh, when I post it to, to iTunes. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I, I've been uh, I've been listening to your podcast for a while now and really enjoy it. And uh, keep up the good work. If uh, if anybody wants to hit me up, 
to ask me any question uh, or anything that we've talked about, uh, which has been a lot, uh, or just, you know, just call me out as a freak for, uh, for not loving the government as much as I should. Uh, it's, uh, you can hit me up at weatherman. I am on Twitter. Awesome. And then you can find me at Marty Bent uh, on Twitter as well. And then if you, uh, if you like this episode, if you like this podcast, subscribe, uh, leave a review. Um, let me know how we're doing and uh, I'll keep iterating on this. And I'm sorry, I haven't put out uh, any episodes in a few weeks. This is the first one in a few weeks, but I'm trying to get more guests. If you have anybody in the New York area, and actually this was the first time we did a, we did a video conference and I'm actually happy with how it went. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's all we have for today. Peace and love.